0: Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going? It's
1: going Thanks. great, David.
0: It's going great, David. Uh, so we're here to discuss the odyssey of Homer. Homer's the odyssey. What do you guys say on that? Do you say possessive or do you say, put, do you put the oven there?
1: Uh, I guess I do possessive. Course?
0: Yeah, I do too. Homer's The Odyssey?
1: Yeah, but I don't really say it that I just, way. I can't Yeah, I, I dropped even the know.
2: article. What'd you say? Homer's Tip? Odyssey. Yeah, it's funny it, because... Doesn't it kind of depend on how familiar you assume your interlocutor is with classical literature?
1: Yeah. You're like If you say I it to anybody
2: it. that runs in our circles, you just probably say... The Odyssey. The Odyssey. But if you need to be more specific, you say... I, if I needed to be more specific, <laughs> I might even just... Excuse me. That, that was not clear. If I, needed, if I was talking with someone and I didn't think they had, they were really handy with classical literature, I might just say Homer. Yes. Instead of designating the Odyssey.
1: Yes. That's a good distinction.
2: Huh. I'll have to think about that one.
0: Okay. So anyway, we're here to discuss homer's the odyssey um and there was even debate about whether or not the is supposed to be part of the title so it just seems to depend a little bit on uh how you approach it even on the dust jacket well actually it's not a dust jacket because it's a paperback but on the little description of the book on this in one place it says the odyssey with the the in italics and another place it just says odyssey without the the in italics so even on emily wilson's translation done by norton they don't even know what they want to do so (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're here to discuss a book that is about Odysseus and Telemachus and was written by Homer many centuries ago. And we are going to discuss books three and four. We talked one and two last week and we're gonna do three and four this week. Um, If you wanna join the conversation, of course you can do that um, on Facebook and the Close Reads Podcast Facebook group. You can do it on Instagram if you'd like at Close Reads Pods. And you can email us at Podcasts at gmail dot com lots of ways to get in touch the conversation has already been good on the facebook group um let us know if you're if you're listening um i know some of you are waiting till the school year starts so that's cool too and uh, it just means you can't join the uh you can't you can't join the early books conversation live but there will be a lot of episodes for you to catch up with i suppose once your school year starts um, let's dive right in and we talked a lot about telemachus and athena and penelope a little bit uh in those first two books when we discussed uh, discussed some things last week. What I want to jump into right away is something that's a little bit on the um, esoteric side, a little bit on the... Maybe you could say technical side, but I think that's the wrong word. But in books three and four, we get a lot of um, what some call boring stuff. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of the... Um, the the disc, there's a lot of description of sacrifices, for example. There's a lot of descriptions of of food. There's a, you know there's descriptions of lists of people. Um, it's like the uh, it's like the first book of Matthew, right? In in the New mm-hmm. Testament, yeah, yeah right. You get bogged down in it. So I I wanted to just get this out of the way. I wanted to kind of touch on it right away. So Tim, I want to ask you this first. There's lots of great things we can talk about here as far as telemachus, and, and we'll do that before this episode. Ends, but when it comes to, for example, the long passage, um, I think it's in the end of book three, where it talks about the sacrifice that they, or no, maybe it's in four. They talk about the sacrifice, and they get very detailed in how they went about making sacrifices. This is at the end of book uh, book three. To what extent do you think it's important? I guess to to be really well versed in in that sort of thing, what all that means and, and the details of that in terms of understanding and being able to understand or even yeah. to teach a book like this. The two things that stood out to me most are the way they talked about food and hospitality mm-hmm. um, and there's the thematic element to that, yes. uh, just as there's a thematic element to the sacrifice question. But in terms of understanding the sort of um, as I said, the sort of esoteric details of ancient Greek sacrifice and ancient yeah. food services, how important is it to really be able to to understand that thoroughly in order to understand this book?
2: For me, there's a question that kind of looms in the background when you start reading The Odyssey. And the question is, is my purpose, let's say you're a teacher reading it with your students, is my purpose to have my students like just really be involved in a rip-roaring adventure that is... The odyssey mm-hmm. or is my goal to understand the rip-roaring adventure to kind of like be enthralled by the rip-roaring adventure but also to kind of immerse themselves in this ancient greek world this kind of like pre-class, pre-classical athens greek world mm-hmm. and i think if the answer is just get them into the story, let them just be kind of absorbed in the adventures of Odysseus and Telemachus and Penelope, then I wouldn't worry that much about the details of the sacrifices. But if you really want to immerse them in the ancient Greek life world, then you pay attention to the sacrifices, the details of the sacrifices. Mm. What What do
0: you think, Heidi? I was going to also ask <laughs> Heidi, are you interested by that? So this this long section it's on one forty nine in the in Emily Wilson's translation in the paperback version, and it starts at line four twenty nine and it goes to the to line four sixty four. So, and it, there's a lot of detail in it. And so, do you enjoy that passage? Or or do they, do you kind of glaze over like people do when they read you know the list of the ships in the Iliad?
1: Right. It's a good question. I think the first time I read the Odyssey, I my I did kind of glaze over it um, because I wanted to get to the story. Right. This is I'm I'm interested in the people. I'm interested in what's happening. I'm interested in what happens next. And so those those descriptions kind of were a bit lost on me the first time I read it. Now, The Odyssey is a great book. It's a book to dwell in. It is, a. it's kind of like walking into a cathedral and you can't take it all in in one walkthrough. Like you can't just walk uh, through oh, a medieval yeah. cathedral and look around and leave and you've experienced the cathedral. You have to dwell in it. You have to look at the uh, the architecture and the artwork on the walls and experience the liturgy. That's, that's what the great books are like. And so on the first walkthrough, you kind of take in the whole experience At once, it's almost like a scan, right? You want to to experience the story for what it is. When you go back and read it again, though, I have found... Uh, that when I read those long descriptions of, you know, the food, the the um, habits at table, the sacrifices, the physical things that orient you to the time and place of the work, I find that enthralling. Now that I really know the story and am familiar with it, um, because it's it it is this immersive, uh, concrete experience in a world that I don't dwell within and so those are the details that anchor me to that world so yes now at this point i i love them but at first they weren't my favorite things. Mm -hmm. of course not Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: so um and so here i'll rephrase the let me rephrase it a little bit this way um i think you both are what you're saying is really interesting i don't mean to say that they're not but so to what degree then is a passage like the one that I mentioned essential to understanding.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Right. Yeah. And those are two different questions, our own experience versus the essential nature of, of those aspects of it. I, I think you can read the Odyssey, you can read the Iliad, you can read ancient texts uh, without having that kind of knowledge. And mm-hmm. some of it you gain from reading it carefully and closely and some of it you can gain from outside sources. But I think if you really want to spend your life in a great book over and over again, teaching it over and over again, it's definitely worthwhile to research Mm. those things and orient yourself to them. But if you're just reading it for fun, you're not missing anything essential to the story by not knowing the exact nature of the ritualistic hecatomb.
2: Do you agree with that, Tim? I do. I I was going to continue Heidi's comparison. Mm. like the first time you step into a men- medieval cathedral, you can't pick up everything. Yeah. And there are portions of the medieval c- cathedral you, 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 I think, properly would say, if this first-time occupant of this cathedral doesn't understand this aspect of it, it's okay. But a first-time occupant of a medieval cathedral really should understand what's happening at the altar and behind the altar. Like, you know, like that's like the, crucial focus probably should be there. So for me in the first mm. half of the odyssey yeah. um the the details about the sacrifices in book 3 are not crucial but book 9 when odysseus will meet the cyclops mm. th- like that's a crucial book to understand what's happening not just in the story of the Odyssey, mm-hmm. but in like the life world of ancient, of ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. Like why is, um, we'll be asking ourselves these questions, why is the Cyclops such a profound enemy? It's not just because he's big and scary and has one eye. There's a lot more happening there mm. that makes that book really crucial. Mm.
0: I was thinking about this because... Well, on the one hand, I guess I was just finding myself glazed over. (laughs) So then I was like, "Well, what does what does this mean about myself?" Right. Um, But then I was thinking, you know, how do you when you when you got a book like this, that's it's it's a tome, right? It's long, you know, and and it covers culture that we're not familiar with, and you know, even when I'm thinking about what do we talk about for one hour on a podcast we're going to cover these two books and we're going to talk we have one hour you know roughly one hour what do we what do we turn our attention to mm. and I was thinking there are these things that I'm that I'm glossing over but I know that they're not unimportant right but so then it's a question of what's to, of degree right and even when you're reading for yourself for fun we can only attend to so many things at one time yeah I started finding myself thinking man this is just this is just something that's that's it's a problem, so to speak, if you will, um, for, for any great book we read, right? Any great, any great book that is, that, is, um, that is important, that's full of wisdom, that's, that's been passed down, there's so much that you can attend to and how do you determine the things that you, that you point to? And, and on the one hand, it's something that I'm just thinking about all the time for a podcast like this, right? Like every time we come on the show, I'm thinking, what's the first question I'm going to ask? What are the things that... Because that first question is going to, to some extent, determine... What it is that we end up focusing on,
1: right? And then that's it kind the
0: of, tone. yeah, yeah. And this, and, and inherently, it means that there's things we can't talk about. That's just limitations. That's life. That's fine. Right. But it kind of, it in my brain, I was having this like existential crisis. Almost like, oh man, this, like that is in some ways, it's a burden, not just for someone who's hosting a podcast and trying to kind of be a part of a conversation, but also just in terms of being a reader in general. It's yes. like the thing. There's only so many books we can read. But then within mm-hmm. the books that we read, that we choose to read, that we choose to make a part of our reading life and and our life in general, we can't attend to everything, and we can just read things over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of I'm kind of having this little mini existential mo- crisis for a moment where I was just thinking, <laughs> "This is it." it you know, I, I'm jokingly saying that, and then at the same time, it it really is kind of a it's not a crisis, but it's it's a it's a decision you have to just think you have to you have to make a decision on what you're going to pay attention to, and you can pay attention to as much as possible, but you can't remember everything, right? Right. And right. so how do you, how do you figure out in a book like this, what to make sure that you remember? Um, how do you, and I mean, let's just take set aside the teaching concepts, like the, the aspect of teaching and, and the aspect of trying right. to help your students remember things. You can make them memorize passages or whatever, you know, dates, people, characters, all those kind of things. But how do you, how do you identify, you know, what what is it that I need to remember when you're reading a book like this? Um, and that's going to be different every time. I realize that, but I, I, at this point, I'm rambling because it's something I'm about. <laughs> but it's just another way of asking the same question. But like Tim, what, how do you yeah. determine something like that?
2: I, I think there's two answers. One of them is if you have a teacher, and one of them is if you don't have a teacher. If you have a teacher, obey. Um, <laughs> what's that? Be obedient. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Especially. I mean, to push that question a little bit deeper, um, what if you're a student, you have kind of employed yourself to a teacher, and the teacher is having you read the Odyssey? Well, a question that might occur to you is, is my teacher a good teacher? Is my teacher going to point me to the right parts of the book that need to be highlighted? And we could talk about like how a student would assess a teacher, which could be an interesting conversation. But let's just say, I think just <laughs> if you're a student and you have a teacher, then you employ yourself to the teacher who has gone before you and can like put the flashlight on the hidden parts of the terrain that are important. Now, if you don't have a teacher, it's harder. And you don't have Google, you know, and you can't kind of, you can't provide shortcuts, then I think the key is you read the first chapter of the book, and really, you read the first page of the first chapter of the book. Because if it's well done, and the Odyssey is, if anything, exceedingly well done, it's going (laughs) to tell you what the book's about. The first page is going to tell you what the whole book is about.
0: In other words, what to pay attention to.
2: Yeah. So you read that. I mean, I think it's a great idea, especially like... You're highlighting this part, David, in, in book three, where maybe for the first time, we're kind of like threatened by yawns. What are we going to do with all this detail about the sacrifices? It's not a bad idea to put your finger in this part of chapter three or book three and to return to the first page of the whole book and reread that first page. And you will probably determine... okay, based on the first page's assessment of what's going to happen in this book, I might not be um, completely lost if I glaze over the sacrifices a little bit.
0: Hmm. Uh, Heidi, how would you address this? I mean, and again, I know it's a little bit of a different angle than what we've already been talking about. But before we move on, I wanted to phrase it that way.
1: Sure. No, I really love that question. And I... First of all, with a book like this, that is a great book. This, and when I say great book, I'm not using great as an adjective. I'm using it as a title. A great book, um, the the books upon which civilization and the way that humans understand our own humanity is formed, and we. You know, I'm not going to go much further than that on that. Um, but when you're reading a book like this, I always make the assumption, I'm going to read this book multiple times. I dwell within this book. This book is too big for me. It's too much for me to understand in reading it one time. So you, I make the assumption, I'm going to read this multiple times. It's going to feel overwhelming to me. Every time I read the Odyssey, and I've read it many times, I, I am overwhelmed by it. And so I submit to that. Right, Hmm. I know that's going to happen. And I like that. I want to be swept away by that. We have to be able to submit to that. We have to accept we're going to miss some stuff. We're not going to get all of it. Uh, It's things that should be fascinating to us will be boring to us. This is a book to dwell in, like the cathedral. Um, And then I will often pick an angle each time I read it. The first time, maybe even a couple times I'm reading or listening to this book I'm doing it just to get the story so that I understand. And I'm not worrying about anything else. That's the whole goal. The hmm. later times I'm reading it, now I know it's going to happen, I don't have to hold my breath, right? So now I can start noticing things I can and um so a lot of times what I'll do is I'll pick an angle and then kind of maintain that angle through the whole story and pay attention kind of just to that and let the other things sweep over me. For example, last year when I read the Odyssey, um, I, I actually just listened to the Odyssey for this particular angle. I was listening to it on Audible um, while I was working out and every, and I would think, okay, as I go through this book, I'm going to, to say whatever decision Odysseus makes right here in, in whatever book I'm on... I'm going to make the assumption that it was the right decision and that he did nothing wrong, that that was the virtuous thing to do. That's the manly thing to do. So, in that mm. case, how would I think about the book? How would mm. I think about the book if I was to accept Odysseus should have told his name to Polyphemus, right? Odysseus should have done all these, Odysseus should have stayed with the goddesses and and that wasn't unfaithful to Penelope. What if I thought of it that way? And how would I understand this book and then the next time i listened to it which was right afterwards i did it the other way what if this was an ambiguous decision what if this is a decision that could have been wrong how would i understand this book right Mm. so and i've done that through the lens of hospitality when i've read it before what if i'm just paying attention to how hosts and guests interact and so then i'm dwelling within a certain aspect of this book so that I can understand and teach it better and be formed by it. Um, mm. And and then I go through that whole book knowing I'm missing stuff, but that's fine because I'm going to come back to it from a different angle. Mm. And then all each of those layers then kind of builds on my understanding. So I can't help, of course, referring to the way I read or listened to it before, of course, yeah. right? So then it forms this kind of, cathedral of understanding of this great book
0: hmm. Hmm. well i want to move on um mm-hmm. uh just for the sake of our listeners <laughs> and time but but um
2: i want to say talk- i want to say david as we do that yeah how do, that's really clever like i'm kind of like i'm thinking about that i'm thinking about the last time i read a book that was new to me I'm thinking about if I had kind of like tried that approach, is this main character? I'm going to default to assuming this main character is doing the right thing. I think that would really highlight the kind of um, moral topography of the book. Yeah.
1: Well, it sheds light on those boring passages, right? Because then you're like, okay, so this is an offering to the gods, which is exactly what Odysseus is in trouble for to Poseidon because he failed to do properly. Yeah. So, of course, this is going to be an important part of the story, right? So then it kind of, I think, helps tie those things together without making me crazy knowing I can't catch everything because I'm just one person <laughs> with a limited well, mind.
0: <laughs> so then let's, let's kind of transition yep. a little bit because at the beginning of book three, there is this, I mean, there is this question of the place of sacrifice before we begin to really realize what it means. And, you know, we have, um, Telemachus gets to uh, Nestor's house and there's the part where, um, he says, now guest, give prayer of thanks to the Lord Poseidon and pour libations to the God. This feast is in his honor, pay him proper dues, then give the boy the cup of honeyed wine so he can offer to the deathless God's libations. Everybody needs the gods. I give the golden chalice to you first because the boy is younger, more my age. And then he puts the cup of sweet wine in her hands and Athena then is a, is a, impressed with his good manners because he gave the to her first and then she makes, she prays. And it's kind of the first the first version of that kind of moment in this book. And then at the end of the book, we get this long sacrifice passage. And then you're bringing up, Heidi, the, the point that Odysseus gets in trouble later for not properly doing... The um, properly doing a sacrifice is that the word Sa- yes. properly yeah. op- yes. sacrificing, <laughs> 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 um, and and I got to thinking about uh the this relationship between the between the men and women and the gods and and the way we should think about the the order of that relationship mm-hmm. um, because we have the gods who kind of sometimes reveal themselves sometimes don't and this sort of if there's one thing that is constantly hovering over everything in this book it's that relationship between the men and the gods yes Um, and the sacrifice you know ostensibly sacrifice is the way of appeasing the gods um sometimes it seems to work and sometimes it doesn't (laughs) but i got to thinking about the 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 nature of that kind of a relationship between you know these characters and between their gods, and I got to thinking about the question of faith and do these is what the relationship ha, they have is that would we would call that faith the way we think about it? Hmm. Um, and then I got to thinking about um, what is this book? I mean, is there anything else there if you take away the the conflict or the the, the complicated relationship between? The men and the gods, um, men and women and the gods. And, um, you know, I think that that is one of the things that is complicated that, that makes this book difficult for especially modern Christian readers because, with that, because, the, because the, one of the essential questions is, is, the, is this book anything if you take out the sort of pagan religion? Hmm. So, Heidi, I think, I, I think I just asked him the last question last if i'm if i'm wrong sorry tim you'll get your turn um how do you approach that question of of the paganism in this book because and and is there anything there if you if you take out the relationships between the men and the gods is there any there there if you take that complicated bit out
1: sure so that was attempted in modern cinematography by uh in the movie troy when they tried to Create this film, this like sweeping epic film, and they completely took out the gods. And of course, it that's the that's the Brad Pitt right.
0: movie about the Iliad.
1: Yes, exactly. That's I mean, yes, you're exactly right, and it failed. Like, it wasn't a very good movie. It didn't have that tension. That it was just kind of a love story, love story, and a war story.
0: On the other hand, you kind of understand, like, how do you film the gods?
1: Right. Well, I mean, you're. Ex- right. that And that's more of a technical question, but if we focus on the thematic elements of it, this idea of there's then what just happened was Paris had an affair with Helen because he thought she was hot and then they left and then that started a war. And then you get that dumb scene when Priam says uh, there's many reasons to have a war. I guess love is just as good as any, right? Like that's so It's really just dumb. So, but the point is that I'm trying to make is that once you take out the tension between the gods and the men, it is just a melodramatic story. It is that that creates this depth to it this sense of the tension between fate and free will and what it means to be seen by the gods is that a good thing or a bad thing and i really liked your question embedded within the larger question that you asked about would we as would we call that faith I love that question, because you can look at this and you can see underneath all of this is a sense of chaos, right i If I don't do my sacrifices properly, if I forget something, then underneath that is this <laughs> then
0: you're in trouble
1: tragic consequence because whatever your relationship is with the gods, it is entirely one sided in which the gods set the terms and then they might change their minds that's it. and so yeah. that whether that is to be called faith i love that question but whatever it is it's always humanity hovering on the brink of chaos and disorder. Mm. and that is what adds this element of pagan religion to this i mean they wouldn't even call it religion right like they this this pagan thinking is and how humans then adapt to that, how do you live a life like that? Hmm. that I mean that adds I think so much pathos and humanity to the to what's at stake in the decisions that all of these characters make. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Tim, you unmuted your your line, so uh, I'm going to assume <laughs> by that 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 is the signal that you gets like raising your hand in the classroom. <laughs>
1: You may, you may address I also muted it
2: because I was, there was some atmospheric noise near me. And so I didn't want it like to... Like a interrupt. volcano? There was a volcano <laughs> that was um, beginning to blow its top. And I didn't We're all yeah. starting to think
1: be, like pagans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Probably a volcano. <laughs>
2: <laughs> David, your question, I agree with Heidi, is such a great question. And I, it's a hard question to answer because for me, as a Christian... When I Mm -hmm. think of that word faith, Mm. so much of the old and the new testament is a rebuke to polytheism Mm. and a like forceful, forceful Mm. repeated assertion of monotheism. Mm. And so when the object of let's say faith. And let's just Mm -hmm. define it for the sake of this conversation as, um, respect for the higher power, higher powers. So you can say, um, Nestor has faith because he has a deep respect for the gods. And you can say Abraham has a deep faith because he has a deep respect for the one God, but Mm The mm-hmm. difference in he believes two, they exist. They both they both believe in their existence, exactly, and, power. and that they're do something that they're they're owed right. something. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Um, and that that owing demands a kind of like a personal responsibility for what is owed. Abraham mm. owes the one God something. Nestor owes the gods something, mm. and so I. I but I, so I think um, for an ancient Jew. Or for an early Christian, they would argue okay, but when you change the object of faith from many gods to one God, it's not just a qualitative difference, but it's a qualitative difference that results in a. Excuse me, excuse me, let me back up. When you change the object of faith from many gods to one God, it's not just a quantitative change, Mm. but it's a quantitative change that results in a qualitative change in other words like everything is in that change from the many gods who can control nature who are unpredictable to use heidi's analogy from our first podcast they're the kind of like unruly popular kids in high school that you're trying to ingratiate yourself to that picture of faith and those multiple entities is so deeply different than faith in the one God Mm. who is kind of like beyond in some ways Mm. our ability to ingratiate ourselves to him. Mm. But I think it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful question because um in one sense I can say yes, Nestor and Telemachus and Penelope they have faith in the gods. But I would then say, but because of the object of that faith, the faith is of a different sort than the faith of Abraham. Not because Abraham is a different kind of God, because the object of Abraham's faith is so different than the object of Nestor's faith.
0: Mm. I was trying to figure out if, I mean, is the relationship that these, these people have, particularly the ones that are considered you know the wise, the, the sage ones, the Nesters, and and the Odysseuses, and so forth. Uh, I was I was wondering, like, is is their relationship to the gods? Is it just basically a rightly ordered fear? Like, is, it, <gasps> is there something more than it going on there than than? Uh, I don't have a better way to put it than just being afraid in the right ways and for the That's
2: right reasons. The right yeah, way. yeah, I love that, David. I love that. I don't know about you, Heidi, but I kind of think I think it that's works. What it is, I think that's what it is. It's a rightly ordered fear.
0: Yeah, so,
1: I think that that's what it is.
0: So, so if that's the case, then then is there then is there a way that we ought to read to read the even just the detail of the sacrifice? I mean, does that does that impact the way that we think about the way the book explores and describes? and incorporates things like sacrifice into, into the book. Like, does our understanding of whether this is faith or whether it's just rightly ordered fear or whatever it is, does that does that determine the way that we ought to think about um, or, or should it just change the way that we think about those sort of practical, lived out um, uh, elements of that, Way of life, yeah. I, I didn't. You said it's not even right. religion, Heidi. So I avoided that word, and I avoided the word paganism. I and mean, That kind of goes without saying. But like you, you, saw, you both talked earlier about sort of the, that that is an example of a way of life. And so right. what, I guess what I'm wondering is, does that does that part of their way of life does that does do that? You know what I'm saying? How uh-huh. do, how do, how should yes. we should it change the way we think about those things?
1: Right. So my the analogy I'm going to give is from a book, maybe some of our listeners haven't read but should read. I'm going to recommend it. Uh, And that's from Graham Greene's End of the Affair. There's a scene in that book in which um, the woman that the narrator is having an affair with goes into a church and has this experience of profound redemption or the beginning of a profound redemption and change. And it's because she encounters something that all of us as Christians will recognize regardless of our faith tradition, which is seeing physically the body of Jesus depicted in this church and contemplating that she has a body like Jesus. Mm. And it's this intensely physical experience in which Graham Greene, as the author, he alludes to uh, liturgical objects, but doesn't describe them in great detail. But, But we all know what he means. And because we know what he means, we know that she's looking at a crucifix, depiction of a crucifix, right? So because we know that, we put our knowledge and our experience of that into the text as we read it. And if you didn't know that, let's say you were an alien from outer space and you wanted to read, you know, this literature, you would read it and say, I kind of get what they're getting at. Obviously they're looking at some deity who has a body and that body is like a human body in some way, Mm -hmm. but that alien wouldn't have the same sense of reverence and experience with it that we take to this novel, whether we're Christians or not right and i think that that's analogous to what's going on in the odyssey i think that you ha- it is important to understand the rituals of these sacrifices to the gods but they are kind of spelled out in the odyssey they're just told to you like she he just describes it and so yeah <laughs> right, i think right. we should be paying attention to it you know but again if you missed it the first time that's okay you can go back and read it again <laughs>
0: Yeah, unless it's an audio book, and then you got to go find the timestamp.
2: Right. (laughs) How much of that description of those descriptions, Heidi, of the sacrifices, do you chalk up to the style of Homer, and how much do you chalk it up to the kind of oh, and I'm not sure it's the right word, the cosmology of the Odyssey? In other words, um, there are moments. That I love in the Odyssey, in which Homer will sort of it, he will insert a description mm-hmm. of the, the type of weapons that are going to be used, and they're not really necessary. We kind of know <laughs> already they're bronze tips. Right. We know what a know? spear is, right? And, and mm-hmm. so, so in this description in Book Three of the sacrifices, do you? How much of that do you think is it's Homer's style, and how much of it is? um welcome reader into this world and let me articulate details about this world to you mm.
1: right well i mean homer's i i mean pr- that's a good question and i guess i think both and i've never thought about that as distinctive before but they are you know there's content and their style right and but and he's a poet and so good poets provide concrete descriptions of what of what the characters are seeing and feeling, I don't think he's describing something for posterity. Though I don't think he's thinking, you know, later on in the future, people can read my
2: can read my book. Dave and Heidi and Tim in 2019 yeah. are going to love this.
1: Right, bit. right. I think he just wrote them down the same way we that we would. Like we just write what we know because this is his world, and he's making an assumption that this is. Um. this is the way people function. And he's Mm. taking the poetic license to describe it. And I mean, in just beautiful language. Um, So I guess I think both, but I don't think he's writing it to me so that, you know, future readers will understand the Greek way of thinking about the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think?
2: I agree with that. I don't think that he was writing. I think he was writing to posterity, but I don't know that even Homer would anticipate a, a posterity of like 2,700 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't sure. do novelists write novels and include detail because they're like, in, in 700 years, this is going to be a time capsule. I mean, I right. that's really how artists think. That's what documentarians sometimes maybe think about. Um, it seems to me that they're doing that to elucidate some theme or, or get, capture your imagination or something like that. Um, Depending on the quality of the artist, I suppose. So, oh, but let's get back to this question of the gods a little bit because there's this line in Book Three that stood out to me. It's and it, it ties into what you were saying, Heidi, about how about the um, the end of the affair and seeing mm-hmm. seeing the crucifix. Because you know that bit in Book Three where. Athena is talking to them and then she, she reveals kind of who she is and she flies away. It says, bright-eyed Athena flew away, transformed into an ossophage. Astonishment seized all the people watching, even Nestor. He sees Telemachus' hands and then they talk. Um, right. You know that moment? So that's like a yes. line oh, 365 or whatever. And he says to, to, he says to Telemachus, dear boy, I am now sure that you will be a hero since the gods are on your side at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's a big question in these two books. The question of whose side are the gods on? It's Well, it's a big question in ancient literature altogether, but especially as the drama of the Odyssey is ramping up, the question of whose side the gods are on, sometimes individual gods versus one another, obviously, um, is key. I mean, you see it in book four when Menelaus is telling his story because Poseidon gets angry at Ajax, right?
1: hmm
0: And he causes him to fall into the saltwater sea and fill his mouth with the salt water and he dies because ajax gloated that he had survived without the gods and so the question of whose side the gods are on is really is really crucial so then i was wondering Mm -hmm. it goes back to this question i guess of a of, of, of a reliable narrator because i was trying to figure out can we trust like can we trust these the the wisdom or, or the prophecies of these wise sage people when they say, "Oh, this person's clearly on your side"? Or this? I mean, it's, it, there's, it's we're not, this is not a narrator in the sense of the way we think of narration now. Obviously, and the, the the concept of narrators in a novel, which didn't exist at the time, um, is much different than it was in Homer's time. But it, but but nonetheless, I was I was trying to figure out um, not do we trust the narrator? I suppose, but can we trust? um the value of the gods being on your side. <laughs> uh-huh. So how do we approach um how we're supposed to think about these characters and, and the question of whether the gods are on their side. Tim, does that is that is that something that you just like take for granted? Like if it says the god is on the, the Athena's on Telemachus' side, that thus therefore things are going to go well for him.
1: Is that because something I just you,
0: take well, it sets you up, I guess is what I'm saying, to think okay things are going to go well for Telemachus because Athena's on his side. Right. So it creates expectation. So do you just go with that?
2: As opposed to, what's the other, what's the alternative? Not trusting the gods, I guess.
0: I guess yeah, I set it up as this narrator question, but really what I mean is, I guess, you know.
1: Would it be better to be ignored by the gods <laughs> and be able to live a quiet life? <laughs> Yeah, or or when so when <laughs> ne-
0: when Nestor says the gods are on your side, should we immediately be like, hey, maybe? Yeah, but is that actually know, that good or what? Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. It's it is, so confusing. It's I mean, like the question is so good because it's so confusing because you know that there are rival gods to this one god. So, Pallas Athena yeah, exactly. loves Telemachus, favors Telemachus. Okay, <laughs> because on he the tr- one.
0: Because he's good to her and he's Odysseus' son. It's like, sort of shallow.
2: (laughs) Right. Right. It's sort of shallow. But it also is... To me, it's sort of like saying... um, I don't want to sound flip. But it's sort of like saying, man, Telemachus, just like your dad, you're handsome and you've got a great sense of style, buddy. (laughs) You know, it's like... And it's shallow. It's not... Um, it's you were, not... You also were nice to me.
0: Wait, say what? <laughs> it's like she <laughs> said, you also are nice to me.
1: Right. Yep. You offered the proper hecatombs. You offered the proper sacrifices.
2: And so, it, it, I, I'm trying to think of like what the right way to say it is. It, it's sort of like saying in a really kind of calloused, cynical moment, I could read Pallas Athena's favoring Telemachus as sort of like, she's going to sprinkle him with fairy dust. And hang on, hang on a second. (laughs) I'm on campus at St. John's College in Santa Fe. And every once in a while, you can probably hear the gravel crunching beneath four wheelers of people that are taking care of the grounds. My window's open. Because if I don't keep the window open in my dorm room, I'll bake. And I won't be able to do episode three of the Odyssey.
0: And we, we, it's been well established what happens to you when it gets hot.
2: Yeah. We've been well, established. It's not good At, for anybody. Ad nauseum maybe. <laughs> right. So I know that in the world of Homer, being favored by the gods is a really, it is a good thing. And it brings woe to the human mortals that trifle with that one who is opposed by the gods however it's not an unqualified good there will be gods that oppose you and because you're favored by Pallas Athena you will draw the ire of other gods who oppose the will of Pallas Athena in this book <laughs> so it's it's a it's a cosmology that is um thrilling because every action is potentially ripe with meaning with like spiritual meaning metaphysical import but it's also a confusing world in that these gods are at war with each other there is no single unifying will above them all not even zeus is that way and being favored by the gods can i mean we're gonna see Odysseus is favored by the gods and he has wit and strength that is extraordinary among humans. And we're going to also see that because he is favored by the gods, he is spitefully attacked by the gods, by other gods.
0: I I appreciate that the way Heidi put it earlier. Heidi, I think you said something like um, it's always on the verge of spiraling into chaos. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, even when it seems Like there's order or structure or favor or goodwill or something like that. It's that inherently means that there is also disorder on the other side because Uh someone else doesn't like you. And right, go ahead, go ahead. You were well,
1: I was, but I want you to finish, and then I'll go ahead,
0: go ahead, go, go ahead.
1: Okay, so that I think the earlier question you brought up to kind of close the circle, you brought up a really good question, which is. You know kind of the age old Christian classical education question, how are we as Christians to submit to a book that is pagan right that's that's a good question and a really important question and I think what you just said, that idea of the spiraling from k from order into chaos and always being at the verge of it is in many ways that even though in modernity we do not believe in the gods nobody believes in the gods anymore that's that's old that's that's done that ship has sailed (laughs) but we do like modernity also is constantly believes that humanity is on the verge of spiraling into chaos because there are no gods like that's the so it's the same like this is a relevant book because Mm. It's yeah. still the same fear. It's still that same rightly ordered fear. If we are constantly on the verge of spiraling into chaos, of being lost in the void, right? That's why so many movies are made of astronauts getting lost in space, right? Because this is an mm-hmm. existential fear, right? Are we always on the verge of spiraling into the void? And what do, how do we live in, in that? Like, that's the same question mm-hmm. that the Odyssey and the Iliad asks. And, and it's the same question that Christians have an answer to. So in reading this book, we're actually entering into a, a crisis of modernity just as much as we're entering into a crisis of paganism.
0: So I, I, one thing I've been thinking about is how there is the sort of surface conflict of this book, the surface mm-hmm. plot that, you know, drives the action. There's Odysseus is lost, back at home, his, his, uh, his son and his wife are, you know, are, are in trouble and how does he get home? And then once he gets home, what happens? How how does that how does all that get resolved? That, that, that's the surface plot. But then I've been thinking about how, to your point, there that sort of always being on the verge of chaos is the sort of subplot that it's the it's the subtext of everything that's going on here. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, we can see, we can see the the sort of surface plot, we can see the points in the narrative structure, right? There's archetypal P- plot points, there's archetypal characters, there's all the things you expect out of a classic story. And we can see those kind of come together and we can see them begin to harmonize into this sort of coherent story. And then ultimately we're going to have resolution and all the things we expect. But what about the subtextual story that's going on there? What about that subtextual plot? The plot of these characters are, because of their relationships with the gods and the way that all that kind of plays out, they're always, even in the best of times, chaos is just around the next corner because right. the best of times means that someone, because one God loves you, as you guys have said, the other God hates you. Right. So because of that, that's always, that chaos is always lingering and that is always being put upon and, and coming in contact with, and thus creating conflict for the characters. So right. is, are there, are there ways that we see that, that, um, that chaos, that, that part of this, is, you know, the sort of subtextual plot, are there ways that we see that reaching, you know, the climax and some kind of coherent order? Like are there are there hints in the book, are there things we can look for that represent mm-hmm. a resolution to that chaos or that that offer are are offering harmony amidst that chaos?
1: Right. Good question. Tim, you want to take? Time? <laughs> I was, was going to. say, Tim, like, I just I talked mean, for a long time. <laughs>
2: oh, you're so I was, good.
0: <laughs> when I start rambling, when I start rambling, guys, that means I'm giving you time to think. I just want to, you know, <laughs> I, drop that out there again. Um, so the when the audience is sitting there, like, man, David is just saying the same things over and over again. It just means that I'm giving them a chance to think. So, <laughs> I guess one thing I was thinking are there things that are there specific things Homer is doing that our storyteller is doing, or perhaps the translator is doing that are offering that sort of. You know, maybe trying to harmonize, even if they don't necessarily mean to do that on purpose, or that, but that provide that sort of harmony amidst that chaos, or that are bringing those threads together. Go ahead.
2: Yes. Odysseus needs to return home. He needs to clean out the suitors. He needs to um, reward the faithful. He needs to punish the unfaithful. Telemachus needs to grow up. Penelope needs to be reunited with her man while also retaining her. Wisdom and her loyalty to Odysseus, like that's the solution to the problem. And I, I mean, I think you can see it in every single page. The book is like calling for Odysseus, the strong, clever one, to to return home. And I think to tie it into the earlier points that we're making, um, the world will still be fundamentally chaotic but because we have the strongest the cleverest man on the throne of his own home ruling as he ought to rule and, and his, having his rule recognized by those in Ithaca that's what will keep the chaos at bay as much as possible so it's not that the like suddenly the ancient Greek cosmology is going to become sensible and the gods are going to start like operating according to rational principles and they're going to, put their, and they're going to kind of like scrutinize their own emotions and saying, you know what, Zeus, I was really mad at you and that's why I was so mad at Odysseus. No, I know that. Like, that's not going to happen. That's just not going to happen. The only way that order is going to be brought is by Odysseus getting back to where he belongs.
0: Your turn, Heidi.
1: Oh, man. I'm getting all excited. If we were on video, you'd see me like on the edge of. I'm in my hotel room. I'm at the apprenticeship. I'm sitting on the edge of the bed.
0: (laughs) So here's. I like this. You're both at events, sitting in hotel rooms, sweating.
1: Just This is why Christians should read pagan literature is because of the question you just asked because of Tim's answer. And hopefully I will be able to articulate in my excitement something to contribute to this. But <laughs> because at the beginning of the Odyssey, they tell us the end. That happens in the Iliad too. It happens in the Aeneid. Because the human soul cannot deal with, a, with meaninglessness and chaos. That it, We don't accept it. We reject that. That can't happen. So all the epics end with resolution. Because no matter what you say, if you say the world is chaotic, you don't believe it. And here's what, yeah. what we have at the beginning of the Odyssey is Athena talking to Zeus and saying, what about Odysseus? And Zeus saying, oh yeah, I forgot about him, which the gods forget about the humans all the time, <laughs> right? Cool. Whoops. Yeah, bummer. Oh, but you know, and I like him. So we're going to get him home. And then Athena says, we have, since you have decreed this, and then dot, 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 the whole rest of the Odyssey happens. Hmm. And at the end, the prophecy is fulfilled. That happens in the Iliad. That happens in the Aeneid. Because you may say, the Greeks may say we believe in chaos. They don't. Because they're great stories that have been yeah. to this day and in resolution the same way the christian story does
0: so then the the odyssey itself the story itself is is an attempt to to provide harmony and resolution to the chaotic worldview that they've invented for themselves
1: Sure, and even if homer didn't mean to he knows that to tell a good story it has to have a happy ending right so there's no way for him to tell the story without getting odysseus home so even if he- be- even if he thought he believed in the chaos of the of the Greek worldview for lack of a better term because I'm so excited I can't think of one right now, so <laughs> even if he doesn't believe in that, he still writes that harmony into the story because he has to because that's the actual true nature of the world
0: you know this is interesting because. One, I'm going to ignore the fact that you just said the best, the only way to tell a good story is to have a happy ending. Cause that's,
1: well, <laughs> I, I got that wrong. And I'm going to correct it now. Because what I should have said is the only way to end a story is to end it justly to the world of the story. So Macbeth, and sadly, but we feel the resolution of that because that's how it should have happened. Hmm. That's telling the truth about the story. Anyway, keep going.
0: Well, okay. So do you think, I was thinking about a lot of the sort of the um, the literary devices that show up, the descriptions of <laughs> the recurring descriptions of Dawn, rosy fingered and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, these descriptions of the sacrifices and stuff. But I was thinking particularly of the similes and the, the, the descriptions of, of nature and, and, um, and rosy fingered Dawn and so forth. Do you think that it's possible that those, that, that the inclusion of those sorts of uh, devices and so forth, and the descriptions and so forth, Are an attempt within the story itself to provide harmonizing agents in the world that seems chaotic. That almost are are little mini microcosms of what the story is doing at large for the culture. Like because they because they provide they're like they're markers, but they also are. You know the markers of time and so forth, but in the way that he describes them and and the beauty that he's setting forth. I mean, even the verse is incredible in some of those moments. Right, Uh like the very end of book three is one of my favorite. I love the way she translated it. It's one of my favorite bits that she did here because it says they spent the night as guests when rosy fingered dawn came bright and early. They yoked the horses to the painted carriage and drove out from the gate and and drove out from the gate and echoing porch. At a light touch of whip, the horses flew. Swiftly, they drew towards the journey's end on through the fields of wheat until the sun began to set and shadows filled the streets. I mean, it's like Robert Frost or something there. It's like, or, you know, the best of Tolkien. Um, And and I was wondering if like moments like that are in some way little microcosms that are meant to offer, this is going to sound trite perhaps, but offer hope in the midst of chaos. Like, Mm -hmm. are they representative of the existence of hope or harmony or unity or order in a world that is chaotic, and thus they are representative. They're little microcosms of what the story itself is doing for Greek culture, as you're describing. Is it possible that's true? Is what I'm saying.
1: I really and love that. Is my theory? It's. I think it's. I've never far, thought is of it that too way. far gone. Well, here's the deal.
0: Is there reading <laughs> into it? <laughs>
1: Well, that's, you know, we're, we're readers. We can It's read a different question. That's right. It. Or maybe it's not reading into, maybe she's reading. Um, that, okay. So I've always heard that those things were markers for the poets who were there because this, this is from an oral tradition, right? And so sure, yeah. you come to an end and then, you know, you know, you memorize Rosie Finger Dawn. That's one of the root struggles that I have with Emily Wilson's translation. I think she misses that but i know she has a reason for it but it's not my favorite part of her translation. But she changes those markers. those you know rosy fingered dawn um you know she'll change hector breaker of horses you know all that stuff. so
0: it, yeah, some of those epitaphs or whatever.
1: yes. but that was written by homer on purpose and i think we should keep it because i'm a traditionalist. but The point is that I've always heard that those were markers for memorization for the poets who are passing this down, you know, orally at festivals. But I really like what you're saying. And I think it does that for the reader, whether that was the original intention or not. Every time I see Dawn with her rosy fingers, I feel this sense of harmony. And and I love that. And that's why and that's why I brought up the translation. That's why I struggle so much with how Emily Wilson changes it. Menelaus even in book 3, it it's the same word she translates it ruddy, she translates it flushed, she translates it um a couple of other ways.
0: She and says gruff, but I wasn't sure if that was the same word the as the other. It is the
1: same word. Okay. I looked it up. And that I don't like because I Menelaus is supposed to be the same I have a sense of harmony in my soul in the midst of chaos when I read it the same Mm. or hear it the same Mm. and so your point I think is whether that's how Homer meant it, that's what I experience with it when I read it and that's why I like it. Mm.
2: Tim, jump in here your line is unmuted (laughs) oh it's unmuted, okay good I have two things, I want to go back to the certainty question or the chaos question, but first Heidi, I'm the farther I get into Emily Wilson's translation, the more that I miss the things that you miss, like those repeated epithet. Is epithet the right word? But those repeated phrases, "rosy fingered dawn," um, the description of the swift, proud ships, or however it's translated. know that epithet would be rep-
0: true for the people, but it's not like true for dawn. I don't think. I don't know if that's the right word for that. But anyway, go on.
2: Emily Wilson's description of why she made that choice makes all sorts of sense to me she she wanted her odyssey to kind of read like a novel for illiterate people as opposed to sounding like an like a long oral poem for a preliterate people and so it makes sense but i'm with you like i still miss it it's part it's of the, the experience recording. yeah what's that
0: it alters the sort of it does. experience it that, does. that has the experience that experience has been passed down. It's like yes. we have like cultural expectations about this book that have been ingrained in our our like reading soul, our collective reading soul.
2: Yeah, that's right. And you could say, well, David, Heidi, Tam, just can, you know, get over it. This is a development. Yeah, we will. <laughs> we will. That's right. <laughs> we don't have a choice. Um, it doesn't mean that we won't miss it. You know, yeah, it doesn't yeah. mean that we won't miss it. I want to go back to the chaos question though, because Heidi, let me let me see if I can restate to you what your position is regarding to kind of like Homer's vision of like the nature of chaos and harmony and order in the ancient Greek world. I don't wanna I don't wanna misunderstand this, but what I heard you saying was the fact that Homer It can tell us this tale about the warring gods and goddesses, and that we can have a beginning and a middle and end to this tale, and the end is satisfying, it's it brings a harmony, whereas the beginning of the book, it's not just chaos among the gods, but Odysseus's home in Ithaca is in a state of profound disorder. And so when we see Odysseus return, when we see him like clear out the suitors, spoiler alert, and put himself back in the center of the picture as the ruler of his home and as the king of Ithaca, we have evidence Homer believes in in order and in harmony, that we can achieve harmony. Is, is that a brief version of, of what you think, Heidi?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was, yeah, well said.
2: I think there's another part of it. that it, Part of this is just like, as a, as a someone who is taught not just literature, but kind of like the history of ideas and the development of ideas in the West. There's and we know you're writing a novel
0: about all of philosophy ever. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're an expert.
1: This is relevant to that. I'm excited <laughs> about what you're going to say. <laughs> it, it,
2: I think it is profoundly important that when Plato and Aristotle And Herodotus, like the first, what we would call, modern historian, when they are asserting that the world is like in some way deeply, rationally ordered and that it can be understood, Herodotus is going to say that the reason that battles were won by this army and not that army is not... Because the gods favored this army and not that army, it's because this army had three hundred warriors and that army had a thousand, and they because they had more. That's the reason they won, and it's there's there's <laughs> that is that is a leap forward in our understanding of the world. That's like all that is really hard to minimize. That is a profound step forward, but with it comes this sort of like feeling that the, um, that the world is a little bit less imbued with meaning and with spiritual import. Mm. And so I think that there is, I think Heidi, you're exactly right. Like the harmony that is that Homer Provides by telling this story, I think, is an indication that he like believes that that order is part of this world and that order can be restored in this world. But what I would say is, the chaos is still out there, and the chaos is on the very threshold of Odysseus's door. Once he has like reestablished harmony in his own, isn't in his own palace? Absolutely. Like, step mm-hmm. out off well, the that's- threshold. Step over the threshold and the chaos is there. Whereas I think Herodotus and later Plato and Aristotle are going to say, well, no, the chaos doesn't isn't waiting for you at your doorstep. The chaos is a little bit farther out even than Ithaca, because we can see order. We can see Thales predicts. He predicts an eclipse. It's not like the he did not believe that the gods just kind of Acted a little crazy and got a little bit angry and decided to black out the sky in the middle of the afternoon. No, he that something orderly was happening in the constellations, and the sun was blocked out by another constellation, and he could predict it. And right. I think, I think that um, as much as I kind of like long for and miss the the mystified, meaningful vision of the world that's in. Homer like I long for it you know however I also am so grateful for Herodotus and I'm so grateful for Plato and Aristotle for saying no there is an order actually in the cosmos mm. and we can interact with it in a way that our lives become in a good way more predictable and more organized and more harmonious
0: in in some ways though doesn't it seem like the invention of the God structures that we see in these ancient Greek paganism is an implication that that was an instinct that was in them already. Like that they that they created this sort of structure because it seemed like it was supposed to be there, but then they didn't the, where it went from there obviously didn't like evolve, but
2: go ahead.
1: Right. That's good.
2: There's Uh, like, David, are you saying something like there's almost like in the harmony that Homer provides in the pages of the Odyssey. Is that harmony sort of like a shadow of the sort of harmony that is going to become extended through the Greeks in, in the centuries to come? Is that kind of what you're, what you're saying?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think also maybe what I'm getting at is a little bit less <laughs> uh, profound than that. But maybe that just that there is... That there is um, within the human soul, that sort of instincts for that. For sure. Absolutely. And and so the history of ideas in some ways, the history of dealing with the sort of internal soul-based instincts that there is a greater order out there in the cosmos and how you, you, and sort of a search, uh, just an attempt to find it, right. To to figure out how to name it and, and give it, understand it and, and live within it. And sometimes that search takes us in the wrong, dire- in the wrong direction. Right. Um, but it seems like, you know, that's why I guess the Odyssey becomes so archetypal, right? Like you, we, call, we call that search an Odyssey, right? Because uh-huh. in some ways, whether we're journeying a home or whether we're looking for the home that is order in, the, in a world of chaos, it, that, that is deeply rooted in all of our souls. And then that's why this story becomes what it became in terms of what it means for culture, for the human imagination, for storytelling, for, for the evolution of Western culture itself. That, that's kind of what I was, I think kind of getting at in addition to what you're saying, but
2: I guess we're saying the same thing. Yeah, Yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. And, And I think the, that observation is crucial. I mean, I just think that we are constantly looking for, relationships between two things and to try to understand if the relationship between two things is meaningful and also there's this deep drive toward like harmony and um and ways to how do i say it i don't want to say bracket chaos but a way of, of finding meaning in the kind of like rational ordering of our lives i think it is like an indomitable Mm -hmm. desire and i think it's for the most part that is a really good desire because it 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 was put in us and it helps us in just in at a minimum in very practical ways to navigate our world and it also draws relationships and meanings between two different things that don't always belong And so there's this kind of like, there's this drive. I'm really talking a lot. Bear with me. I'm taking this film class um, at the, while I'm here in Santa Fe. David, I'm sure that you know about this kind of experiment that Russian filmmakers did. I can't remember when. I want to say, I don't know, earlier in the 20th century, in which they had this famous Russian actor. They filmed him looking down and they said be expressionless look at the camera and then look down okay so that's what he did he did not know what he was looking down at and then in the film they would splice different images that they had filmed as if he were looking down at this image so the first one was a bowl of soup the second one was a little girl playing um the third one i can't remember what the third one was and then they showed these these pieces of film spliced together to different audiences. And the audiences said, oh, when I saw the man look down at the bowl of soup, I realized how hungry he was. When I saw the man look down at the little girl playing, I realized how much affection he had for his daughter. And so there's an example that the juxtaposition of these two things by audiences the meaning is pasted onto those two things, but the meaning originally was not there. It was not there. Hmm. And so I think it's like, that's like the kind of like the promise and also like the danger of this drive for harmony that we have is that the negative aspect of it is that it can, it can push us to arrive at conclusions because we need to have what the conclusions are. We need to have a kind of like a harmony between these two images. But that harmony is not always like a harmony based in truth. Hmm.
0: You know, it's funny. So this conversation got slightly away from the book, I suppose, but well, at least directly. But I, I think it comes back, it does bring us back to Telemachus, and we've got to wrap this up. Um, but it seems like what Telemachus is after, like the key thing for him here, in fact, in book three, Athena kind of sick, comes right out and says that her goals are to um, try to find it. Well, he's, he's after a sort of order, right? I mean, <clears> this <there's throat> order in his home, but also what he doesn't have a clear sense of, um, what we don't have a clear sense of, what he does not have a clear sense of is the order of his own relationships. Like, what does it mean to be Odysseus's son? Mm. and and to me the telemachy is about him discovering what it means to be odysseus's son and that and that once once he has a clear sense of that he has a clear sense of the order of his relationships then he is able to take action in a way that he wasn't previously yeah and 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 he doesn't have that until he athena takes him under her, her wing his well, his if, depending on how you want to <laughs> go by the descriptions of his of the disguises, but then also he goes to Menelaus and he goes to Nestor and he hears from Helen and they all tell him stories of his father, and that once he discovers what it means to have been Odysseus' son or to be Odysseus' son, and he gets he gets word that he is alive somewhere or he seems to be alive somewhere, then that's when he has a sense of order that allows him to take action, and without that sense of order. He doesn't know what to do. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it, it's like the chaos is cleared up just enough for him to begin taking steps out. You know, in in a, in a way that is productive, as opposed to just kind of feeling the chaos all around you and curling up into the fetal position. Uh-huh. And once he has that sense of what what it means to be a deceased's son, and he has people start saying, "Man, you really look like your dad," and he was mm. the person I ever saw like that. It goes from sort of a. I talked about this in a talk I gave. A couple couple listeners have heard this, but it goes back. It, it stops being intellectual. For him. Like he intellectually knew he was Odysseus's son. Yeah. But at the end of the telemachy, it's more than intellectual. It becomes It gets in his blood. Right. Right.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Or maybe anyway. he just like he feels he feels the blood that's been coursing through his veins the whole time.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: and for him, then that's the order within the chaos. That's the thing that anchors him. Is knowing who he is and who this he is, who is I am. where he belongs and that he has a, again, we're back at what we talked about last week, which is in the sea of chaos. If Poseidon, Earthshaker, the god of chaos, really, does, with the raging seas, if he's after me, what do I have? I have a home. I have a family. I have an identity. I have a role.
0: Mm-hmm. And that yeah. gives yeah. yeah a role. The, that um, role is such yes. a key part of the idea of order because things yes. have their purpose,
1: right? And that's why the gods really were. That's that's the great sin that say you know we get we keep talking about Aegisthus and Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. The the sin that Clytemnestra and Aegisthus, the the or at least the focus of the great impiety that they committed is not necessarily moral the way Christians do, but it's an attack against the order of the city and the nation and Mm. the gods. Right. And that's, that's the nature of the sins that these people commit. They did. That's why the sacrifice come full circle. That's why the sacrifice, the order of the sacrifices matters, right. Is because in the chaos, the order is, is, the hierarchy, the tradition, the role, the family, the home, the city. And so you can't just have wives committing adultery and murdering their husbands, not just because it's a great moral violation. That's not how the Greeks thought. It's an, it's a violation against this tenuous order when all of humanity is almost is on the brink of chaos.
2: And you can see that same thing in... The Greek tragedians four or five hundred years later. Yes. Odysseus, excuse me, Oedipus's, um, the plague that's affecting the city is brought about by this sort of, oh gosh, how would you describe it? Um, By this sort of moral, oh, what's the right word? It's not error. It's almost like there's grit in the, the gears of society, the order of, um, of the city. And the only way to remove it is by removing Oedipus, who didn't even really sin in the way that we think of sin as Christians, but he um, killed his father unwittingly, slept with and married his mother unwittingly. And it's caused this sort of like this, this chaos to infect the city and the plague is descended upon it.
1: Right. Because so it's, the same thing. It, yeah. it's not
2: just the error of a single person, but it's the, error, it's the error of a single person that is an infection.
1: Right. Yes. Because the intent of the, 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 the agent doesn't matter. The way that's not how the Greeks thought about it. It wasn't you did this on purpose, so you deserve to be punished. Like right. we moderns want to let Oedipus off the hook because he didn't. Right. He didn't mean to. It was tricked by fate, right? That's the gods' fault. The gods would say, "Too bad about fate. You disturbed the order because we're always on the brink of chaos. We're always ready to spiral into the void. So the order must be kept, and whether you meant to do it or not, is that doesn't matter."
0: you guys i said we had to wrap this up and then I, you
1: know, know, I know i know it started getting interesting i'm sorry
2: it started <laughs> getting yeah it only just started getting like At the end there it kind of started percolating for me. yeah <laughs> <laughs> well
0: we're going to talk about a lot of this stuff throughout the rest of this very mm-hmm. long book so we've got plenty of time to talk about these um final thoughts from either of you but there you have 30 seconds tim i have no final thoughts Heidi, you have thirty seconds. I
1: have three final thoughts, but I'm not going to say them because they would take way longer than thirty seconds. So just I'll say them for later.
0: Just say them, but don't go any. Don't say anything more than just listing them.
1: Okay. A, a listener asked about. I'm just going to list one because it can take thirty seconds. The a listener asked about why is the paternity of Telemachus such a big deal? And so, in the, a future episode, I'd like to address that.
0: Great. Okay, then we shall. Okay. <laughs> All mm. right. Well, uh, next week we are going to discuss. It's going to be a little bit of a longer section. There's two sections um, that we're going to have to do a little bit longer, and this is the first of the two. And so we're going to talk about books five through eight next time. Um, this is kind of a lot of this is where we get the just the journey of Odysseus type stuff. So um, we should be able to cover it, and it's just kind of it's really the only way we could figure. Out how I could I was working with Matt Bianco to figure out the flow, and this is the best way to do it. So there's two sections. It's a little bit more reading. So you know. Don't procrastinate on your homework, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, Deal. <laughs> um, but thanks thanks to both of you, of course, for being here. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Again, you can join the conversation on Facebook in the Close Reads Podcast group. On Instagram and Twitter, we are Close Reads Pods. And the email is podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget about the newsletter that's been going out. I'll be sending out something later this week um, that Roman Rhodes Media is helping us do that explains... Uh, the dactylic hexameter, Wes Callahan, had made a video and they're cutting some of that together specifically for us. So I'll be sharing that on the newsletter. So if you want to learn about that, then make sure you sign up for that. And you can sign up for that at closereads.substack.com or by going to closereadspods.com. All right. With that, uh, this has been another episode of CloseReads for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh. I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. We'll talk to you next week.